Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So a little bit of follow-up from last episode. We touched on a couple of books about independent watchmakers, including The Twelve Faces of Time and Watchmakers, The Masters of Art Horology that Chris picked up. And another book that I neglected to mention that should also be included with uh, that duo would be Michael Clarizzo's Masters of Contemporary Watchmaking. I have to admit I haven't actually completed reading this particular book because I, I find it a little challenging to read it. It requires a lot of focus and not because of the, the content of the text, but the way that it, it's displayed. A lot of the text in the book is is typeset in white against a bronzed background and will often have imagery laid underneath that as well that doesn't provide the best contrast for reading. And it's a rather large book as well, so it's not something you can sort of curl up in a, a chair with or, or read on a, a train or a plane. Uh, you'd probably disgruntle your, your neighbors on a, a plane, for sure, with the, the size of the book. It's definitely a coffee table book. It's uh, got to be 16 by 16 inches or something like that. Uh, but it, photography in it is phenomenal, and of, of course the watchmakers that it features are equally, uh, actually surpassingly phenomenal. Uh, so it's, it's worth it to pick up even just for the photos. Uh, as for the text, I cannot comment on yet. Yeah, I have to agree. The, uh, the weight of it means that you'd probably exceed your weight allowance on most planes. <laughs> it is a sizable book. Uh, and I, I agree as well. The typesetting on it is is miserable. But I, I'm, I am happy to admit that I did not buy it for the articles. I bought it for the pictures. It's it's a fabulous book for seeing what people are doing. And the, the photography in it is spectacular. So yeah, it's, it is certainly worthwhile collecting. It's got a number of great close-ups in it. Uh, what would you think of some of the engine turning from the independence? Yeah, the the engine turning on the some of those uh, those watches is great. It's it's nice seeing seeing that work from the independents because most of the engine turning that's being done these days by the major brands is not particularly impressive, with a few notable exceptions. But most of the independents are actually spending some time and energy doing it well, uh, mostly because they can. They they're not doing hundreds or thousands of pieces, so they can they can focus on producing really high quality work yeah, they have, the engine turning work in that book is spectacular and, and certainly worth seeing now in that vein we did elaborate a little bit on what goes into ornamental turning or what distinguishes it from engine turning in our last episode uh, but for anyone who doesn't happen to be as familiar with what engine turning is and hasn't heard previous episodes that we alluded to how would you describe engine turning yeah i guess we didn't really uh, do a great job of explaining engine turning in the last episode and if you've been following along from the beginning i know we've talked about it in little bits and pieces uh throughout all of the episodes but maybe it's something we need to discuss in more depth uh, in its own episode engine turning is a form of engraving and engraving is typically done with some kind of a fixed tool cutter the traditional uh, way of engraving uh, was done with a chisel in your hand with a hammer or uh, an engraver in your hand uh, sort of resting up against your palm. Uh, so if you think to the classic imagery of, let's say, a gun engraver, 
that's often something that people have have seen a video of you know where somebody engraving a uh, a high-end trophy of some kind that, that's the kind of engraving that most people are, are familiar with when they think about engraving so it's done with a, a fixed tool uh, an actual graver some modern engraving is being done with obviously lasers and some of them being done with spinning cutters so you have a high-speed cutter in a v-shape which is uh, cutting out the uh, pattern that you're you're trying to engrave and you'll see that kind of engraving being done in you know a mall store or something like that where you buy you know you might buy a gift for your groomsmen or whatever in a at, a, at your wedding and you'll have their names engraved in in the you know the flask or whatever it is uh, so that that kind of engraving is being done with a spinning cutter that kind of engraving is not spectacular one of the advantages with fixed cutters is that you get a very bright cut from the engraving itself uh, so you, you're not polishing that cut afterwards you're getting a uh, because the po- the engraver is so highly polished you get a very very bright cut out of it and the sides of the cut are are very reflective so with engine turning you're you're using those very highly polished cutters and you're getting a v cut into the metal so you're actually removing metal away you get a a curl of metal coming up as you engrave and the result is that you get a very very bright finish in your cut and uh, you get a lot of reflection from it so the the goal with engine turning is that you're creating a lot of very reflective cuts in the metal the way it differs from traditional hand engraving or freehand engraving is that you're being guided by an engine so in this case, the, the engine we're using is either a Rose engine or a straight line engine. Both of them use cams in different ways to be able to guide the pattern that you're, you're cutting. And typically we're using these cams to create repetitive patterns with minor variances in them to create uh, interference patterns using the different cuts together. Uh, the traditional ways that it was being used that most people would would recognize uh, in the watch world are on the backs of watch cases, uh, pocket watch cases. You'll see a lot of it. Uh, If you see watches from a company like Breguet, their watch dials are all being engine turned. Um, So that's traditionally where you're you're seeing it uh, being done. At least that's what most modern people will have seen it in. You know, as we mentioned, it's it sort of comes from the tradition of ornamental turning. It's been used primarily in high wear jewelry items, so personal items, things like things like a pocket watch, which is something that you're carrying every day, or a cigarette case that you're carrying every day. And there are a lot of advantages to it. Not only is it decorative, uh, but it also hides a lot of the wear marks from daily use. So you'll hide those little scratches and everything like that that you see. Uh, if if you know anybody with one of the original iPhones, the backs of those iPhones were being made out of, I think it was a piece of aluminum, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at them, they were highly polished when they came out of the box, but they're all scratched up now from the use. You know, people carrying them in their pocket, rubbing up against change, rubbing up against uh, their keys, you know, putting it down on a table, that kind of thing. And And so the marks of daily wear meant that those those are highly scratched now. And that's not so bad when you're talking about an item like a phone, which you're going to be replacing after a couple of years. But 
many of the items which are being engine turned are items that somebody would hold on to for a long time and probably pass down as heirlooms. So, you know, the engine turning is certainly decorative, uh, but it also has functional purpose in that it's it's hiding a lot of that uh, that sort of wear and tear from daily use. In terms of how the engines work, as I said, there's there's basically a set of cams that are that are driving these. Uh, in the case of a rose engine, it's a circular cam, and it pushes the headstock back and forth uh, sideways to change where the workpiece is in relation to the cutter as it's going around. So you'll create, let's say, a sine wave pattern as it's going around based on on that cam. In the case of a straight line engine, the cam is just a straight bar, uh, or I should say a vertical bar, that has the pattern cut into it. And again, you might have a sine wave in that bar. And as you pass, as you move up and down that bar, it will push the headstock sideways, left and right. And again, the workpiece is on that headstock, and so it, it moves back and forth in front of the cutter and and that that's what gets your pattern going uh we'll see if we can find a couple of good videos linking to this it's, it's something i've been meaning to f- to video more in my uh in my own work so that i can show off exactly what's going on but uh i think there's there's a few videos out there from uh, people i know that we can probably post and uh it might give you a better sense of what's going on engines are one of those things that even even looking at them in detail and seeing the work that comes out of them it's not entirely obvious as to how they function so it it is worthwhile actually seeing videos of them in use before uh, before you can really get a good sense of what's going on with them. Now for anyone who might not be familiar with the sorts of watches and, and cigarette cases that you alluded to, would you say it, it's fair to compare the sorts of patterns that, say, a Rose engine makes to that of that toy from the 80s, the, the Spirograph? Yeah, the Spirograph has a is producing a slightly different type of pattern. It's a geometric pattern. And um, in fact, you you can often get geometric chucks for rose engines so that you can create those patterns. And sort of the the final evolution of the um of the rose engine and straight line engine was actually a geometric engine, which was being used by primarily uh, the bank industry, any security printing industry to produce those those geometric patterns but a, something like a spirograph is is sort of the this very simplified version the, the sort of the reduction of that that geometric chuck into or geometric engine into a a simple toy and yes they're they're great for for playing around with ideas and certainly if you uh, you know if you have a chance to play with one they're they're a lot of fun and those patterns can be very similar to what a rose engine is going to do I think this is probably a topic we should discuss a little bit more because I there there's a lot to discuss and there's especially about how to develop patterns and how how we use it in different ways uh, the you know again the the differences between a rose engine and a straight line engine uh, lead to some interesting variances in how they work and and how we we work on patterns uh, so we'll we'll probably talk about this a little bit more and, and go into a little bit more depth in another episode because I think there's there's some interesting things to discuss, including the history of some of these engines, both antique engines as well as modern engines that people are making. So that uh, that's probably something we'll t- we'll go into in a little bit more depth in a future episode because I think it's worthwhile discussing some of that and and getting a giving people a better sense of of exactly what it is that uh, that these engines do and and what the art is like. Absolutely. Perhaps we could 
do a review of the Matthews documentary. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of good videos out there, including one on Martin Matthews, uh, who was a watch case maker. He collaborated on a video uh, a number of years ago um, about engine turning, and that's uh, that's worthwhile. I think there's some clips of that available on YouTube, so maybe we'll see if we can find uh, find something there. And of course, there, you know, the watch world as well. Uh, people like Roger Smith are continuing in the tradition of Breguet and using engine turning on his watches and dials. So that's uh, again, it's it's being used heavily in the watch industry still, and it's the, that industry is probably the sort of the champion of it, and and probably will continue to be the champion of it just because it's a uh, it's so heavily ingrained in the in the tradition of of watchmaking. So probably won't see it very much in in many other or many other arts or, or industries anymore. But certainly, watchmaking is going to continue using it for for a long time. Welcome back again. Yeah, I know. I keep doing this. I ended up on a an interesting trip to the middle of nowhere, which turned into an interesting trip on the way home, thanks to uh, the horrible routing patterns of United Airways and uh, their inability to uh, land an airplane on time. Uh, I ended up being stuck in San Francisco for a few hours on Thursday afternoon, which was pleasant. And so I got to spend the afternoon in uh, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, MoMA just happened to have a great exhibit on René Magritte while I was there. And uh, for those of you who don't recognize the name, you probably recognize his most iconic image, his most iconic painting, which is the the man in the bowler hat with the apple in front of his face. It's called The Son of Man is the original title of that. Uh, anyways, he's one of the critical surrealist artists from the 20th century. Uh, he was uh, from Belgium. And this particular exhibit was excellent uh, as it had well over 100 pieces from him uh, from his entire career, including his very early th- work, which was extremely bizarre, very surreal. And you could see how the war and German occupation was changing his art partially in a response to it, but also in an attempt to get past the art censors from the German government. You know, you could sort of see that um, that happening throughout his work and then post-war seeing what he was doing with the uh, with his art. So that was an absolutely fabulous exhibit, uh, highly worthwhile, although I think at this point it's only open for another week or two. So I've uh, managed to just get in under the wire and accidentally get to see a great uh, a great exhibit of Magritte's work. So yeah, that was uh, that was very fortunate. So were there any standout pieces for you that would find a, a deserving place alongside some of the Stephen Strang works you have up on the walls around your house? Yes, it's pretty clear that uh, that Mr. Strang is a I'm a Magritte fan as well. Um, he's um, Magritte has a has a great sense of humor. I, I really do enjoy his uh, enjoy his work, and I think his work is more approachable than some of the other uh, surrealists that are out there. So I, I I certainly if you if you haven't seen any other work of his than the uh, than the Son of Man, I recommend checking out some of his other work because it is really quite uh, it was really quite good. Yeah, I think if I was going to add one of his paintings to my collection of strings, or at least alongside my collection of strings, not that I can afford him a greet, his uh, series, The Human Condition, is actually quite good. And it's an interesting 
commentary on art and perception where he's painted a scene often a scene with a window which of course is already acting as a frame looking out onto the world and in front of the window he's placed an easel where he's painted the background that you see through the window onto the canvas that's sitting in front of it and when you you know it appears at first as if all you're seeing is just a reproduction of the uh, of the world in behind uh, this window or through through this window i should say uh, but when you start to look at them, you realize that in many ways, the piece that he's painted isn't necessarily what's there. Uh, there's a particularly good one, the uh, I think it's a walk with Euclid. And um, it's you can tell that he's starting to, to play around with, you know, perception and reality and trying to sort of reframe what you're seeing and trying to convince you that what's there is not actually there. So it's, it's, um, yeah, that series is, is quite, quite interesting. And it's, uh, it's worth looking at those pieces because they're, they do give you an interesting perspective into, into the world and what you're seeing. A couple of them where he's done things like broken, broken a glass window and, and things like that and put the, put the imagery of the, uh, of the background on the broken shards, uh, on the ground. I'm not really describing it well, but anyways, there's there's a couple of excellent, yeah, there's a couple of excellent um, image. Some of the imagery in them is is just fabulous. So, anyways, the the human condition. That's probably one of the series that I would I would love to be able to add a print at least of of one of those pieces into my collection because it is uh, it is quite interesting. Now, mention of uh, the Son of Man, just the the painting with the man in the bowler hat reminds me of the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. Which uh, also, not to spoil the film in any way, also brings to mind what what happened with the the Banksy piece being shredded just just recently. Yeah, there's some some interesting things that have come out from that. Oh, one of the uh, just going back to the Thomas Crown affair quickly. The the interesting thing with the the Son of Man is that in the movie he he calls the uh, the painting I guess like an anonymous businessman or something like that there's some reference made to it being an anonymous businessman but it isn't actually it's just a painting of an of an average middle-aged man in Europe in sort of the mid-20th century and in fact he painted it as a self-portrait uh, so it's it's just a average run-of-the-mill middle-aged man in in Europe in the mid-20th century it's not actually a businessman even though the average man in Europe today wouldn't be dressed like that but Anyways, it's uh, so it's an interesting commentary about the artist himself as well. Yes, that that Banksy piece was interesting, and there have been a few things that have come out. I know there's been a lot of commentary talking about how Christie's was in on it and everything like that, but uh, there have been a few videos and things that have come out since, of uh, including some from Banksy, um, that discuss the um, the incident. And uh, the first thing is, it's very clear that when you look at the video of uh, the auctioneer. It's very, very clear that he was not in on this, this at all. He was really, really not happy when when that happened. Apparently, Banksy isn't particularly happy either because during all of their testing, the canvas just shred completely every single time. Uh, so they, he was a little bit annoyed that the uh, that the piece didn't shred completely this time. No, it just makes it all the more collectible. Well, that's just it. It has it, and that's how Christie's has sort of spun it now. Is that instead of instead of selling a piece of destroyed art they've now been involved in creating a piece of art so mm -hmm. i i for one am happy with what banksy's doing mm -hmm. and I, I did not know that tidbit 
uh, about the Son of Man. So, uh, thanks for mm-hmm. sharing that. I, it's uh, an interesting little fact. One of the great little bits of information that uh, that showed up in this uh, this exhibit. So I, I love. I would tell people if you're in the San Francisco area or if you're accidentally there, like I was, then make an effort to go to MoMA and check it out. Unfortunately, it's probably only there the another couple of days by the time this podcast gets released however it, it's certainly worthwhile going to and it's uh it's a fabulous exhibit and if you if you get a chance to see some of his work or pick up the catalog from the exhibition it's it's nice to be able to see his work uh, across such a large period of his life and frankly there's there's a number of pieces or a number of artists who are represented at moma as part of the regular collection who are like that so uh gerhard richter for instance uh, another famous 20th century artist and he there are a number of his pieces on display there and again over a significant part of his life so you can start to see how his experiences again in uh, in europe during the war post-war how that affected his uh, his painting so this is the third episode in a row that you are coming to fresh off the heels of a flight i'm i'm Curious to know, given all your your travels, how do you typically prepare for travels that involve flights? So, what 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 do you pack? What's the the protocol or, or little things you make sure to do each time you travel? Well, the first thing is that I mentally prepare myself for not getting any sleep. I envy people who can sleep on planes. I am not one of them. I've never been able to sleep well on planes, mostly because I, I can't find the right support for my neck. So uh, that's the first thing that I do is I, I mentally prepare myself for the idea that I will not sleep for one or more days while I'm in transit. And that's that's often the most challenging part of, of traveling for me is, is that flight and not sleeping. But when it comes to actual travel, I think this is something you and I have spoken about offline a little bit, but bags are the constant struggle for me and trying to find the right bags to to pack with and to uh to travel with while I'm while I'm abroad. I don't know over the years I've bought a number of bags and tried to sort of find a balance between pieces that I like and pieces that are practical and pieces that fill other needs like the uh, you know the the need for presenting a, a the right appearance while I'm at business meetings and things like that. Uh so it's for me it's it's usually a combination of different bags and I can honestly say that I'm not entirely happy with my setup right now. Uh, so that's something we'll we'll probably touch on a little bit. And then I'm also starting to work on some protocols for for travel that allow me to do things and not forget them while I'm traveling. So we, I guess we'll talk a little bit about some of those as well. So bags are probably the first thing. And that's the thing. One of the things that we've talked about over our lunches over the years is what what bags we like and what we don't what are you looking for in a bag these days when when it comes to packing and traveling well before we dive into that i think it's it's worthwhile to to mention an xkcd comic that you tweeted <laughs> a, a yes. while back uh that, that i think uh well sums up the the problem of, of finding the right bag the backpack dilemma yeah exactly i, I think it is uh might very well be an unsolvable problem just because your, your needs tend to to change and and you want something that's going to adapt to every situation but the reality is that uh, there is no one bag that is going to adapt itself to to every single situation but yeah i I did recently find myself in a bit of a dilemma because uh, my tried and true go-to bag for many years was one made by osprey i really like their bags and then they stand behind them and 
one of the things that really drew them to me when I first picked mine up, which is, you know, going on over a decade ago now, this particular bag lasted me 14 years before it finally bit the dust. And when I, I sent it in for their warranty repair, they, they said uh, that they could no longer repair this particular bag and this particular issue that had, had transpired. Essentially what had happened is while I was uh, on a trip along the Cabot Trail, I, I tore into the the front of the the backpacks, stuffing it under the chair in front of me on the plane ride home. So it, it lasted me throughout the, the trip, which was great, but then uh, I couldn't safely stash anything in the front pocket anymore without it falling out. So I, I sent it off to, to Osprey, and, and to their credit, they did fully replace the bag for me, but the new bag that replaced it didn't quite suit my needs just right. So I was all of a sudden in a situation where I needed to shop for, for a new bag again. It took me a while to zero in on one. And I'm also very fortunate in that my, my wife and I all often buy the same item. So, you know, same pair of shoes, a size for her, size for me, you know, same hoodies. So in this case, we bought the, the same backpack. And uh, she wasn't using hers at the time. So I was able to use her in sort of limbo while I was looking for a new bag. But hers was a slightly smaller size, and it meant to fit her frame. So in the same way that I would probably be very uncomfortable walking around in in her shoes for a couple of months, the bag did its job for the most part, but it wasn't as comfortable as my own bag was to wear. So it was purchased and and fit for her. little sideline here as well. Interesting note for their larger bags with the Ospreys. I bought one of those for a an expedition out on the West Coast a couple years back, and I didn't want to get one of their big 80-liter packs. I was actually more drawn to the the women's sizes. And uh, if you want, as a guy, to buy one of the women's bags, because the colors, they're very androgynous, you can actually take the harness from the the larger bags and swap it in for the, the smaller ones and vice versa. So if you're would typically be wearing, say, a, a need of a frame that is meant for a female, so the harness uh, that is designed for the the female anatomy. You can throw that on an 80-liter bag if you want instead of, say, the 60-liter ones that they sell. Anyway, that aside, uh, grateful to my wife. She let me borrow her backpack for a couple months until I finally found one that more or less ticked the boxes for me. And uh, right now I am using the Mountain Hardware Frequent Flyer 30 as my everyday carry as a backpack. And it it ticks most of the boxes for me, but doesn't tick all of them. And it's missing uh, quite a few of the niceties that the Ospreys have. Things like the waterproof zippers and the little zipper tucks and just actually the zipper pulls themselves. I find are a lot nicer on the the Ospreys and the overall build quality. Uh, But it's a, a nice light backpack. It can hold uh, my 15-inch laptop, no problem. It's got a separate pocket designated just for that. The pocket for the water bottle can be fully zipped up, so I don't have to worry about losing uh, a water bottle, which is something that has happened to me more than once in my travels. And it's got a nice sunglass pocket, plenty of storage in the center. I like to have a large main compartment that can fill up with packing cubes or various other little things is very adaptable. So that was one nice thing uh, about this bag is that it does have a, a very adaptable large compartment and uh, the inside is a bright 
orange, so I can't really lose anything in there. And then some more utility type pockets in the the mid pocket. And one thing I, about it that I, I was dissuaded by when I was first investigating them, but I actually quite appreciate now, is that the the front pocket is fully open. So there's like the very foremost one. There's no zipper, no Velcro, no latches or anything. And I was concerned about things falling out of it, but I've actually found it particularly handy just for throwing a toucan or a pair of gloves or even just something like hand sanitizer. So you don't have to fuss with zippers or anything like that. You just stick a hand in and grab it. And it's very convenient. And I haven't had anything fall out of it. So it's it's done its job quite well. And the other great thing about this bag is, is that I do, when I'm traveling on my own, like to not check any luggage. I like to travel with just a bag. And this is a backpack that I can use every day around town or I can travel with for you know, up to a week and only bring this with me on the plane. I mean, it's called a, a frequent flyer for a reason. It is designed for air travel. It will pass all the, the regulations and everything for size can slip under a seat easily up in the overhead compartments easily and it's got some compression straps too if if those are needed so it really ticks all the boxes in terms of being flight compatible the only thing i don't really like about it in that respect is the stash pocket if you overfill it, it juts into your your back which i find uncomfortable whereas on the osprey that i had before the stash pocket you could fit quite a bit into. So this is where you'd stick, say, your passport, your plane tickets, some cash, what have you, uh, out of reach from anyone who might be trying to get at your zippers when you're not paying attention. So I, that's the only real downside in, in that particular respect. But what are some of the things that you look for in a bag, Chris? I always find it frustrating because I'm looking for different things that are not compatible necessarily in bags. So my daily carry bag, I don't actually carry a backpack. I carry a, a briefcase, a leather briefcase when I'm going around. Uh, I tend to prefer it in terms of the look as well as the convenience of uh, packing, uh, how I can pack things. So my daily carry bag is um, a heavy leather briefcase from Saddleback Leather. It's their flight bag. And uh, it's a bag that I'm... Great company. Yeah, it's a bag that I'm I'm really happy with. Yeah, if you've if you've never seen their their video that they did on how to fake one of their bags, how to um, the the founder Dave did this great video a bunch of years ago on how to uh, how to make a a knockoff of one of their bags. It's it's pretty funny, but their um, their bags are excellent. They're very very well designed. Uh, they're incredibly sturdy and well made. Uh, I've traveled with my briefcase from them all around the world. I, I do like it as a sort of as a business briefcase i think it looks good and i think it it's very very useful in terms of what it can fit in there uh, i could fit my 15 inch macbook pro in there along with basically everything that i need for a couple of days of travel so it's it's pretty convenient from that point of view it isn't the most comfortable bag to carry around uh if you're not a very big person i have i happen to be large enough that i can comfortably carry it around and it's it's not too bad it's it's probably not the most convenient thing to travel with uh, long distance if you need to. And that's where the backpacks come in. So uh, if I'm traveling somewhere uh, by air, 
most of the time I will try and bring a backpack with me instead of the flight bag. Although, you know, again, I do travel with that. Uh, my recent trip, I had uh, I had a backpack and I had this uh, this briefcase with me as well. And the combination of the two meant that I could uh, get on without any uh, any checked luggage, which happened to be a, a big bonus for me because of my rerouting situation. So, uh, you know, it is it is convenient for for short trips, and it's convenient for me in my sort of everyday walking around. But at the same time, I'm also driving most places. I'm not on public transit, so I don't have to worry so much about uh, complete comfort when it comes to traveling with it, because uh, most of the time it's sitting in the trunk while I'm traveling, and then I can carry it into whatever meeting I need to. So. That's that's sort of my daily carry bag right now is that flight bag. And just to alleviate any any confusion, the name of the bag is actually the flight bag. Uh, it is from Saddleback Leather. Again, their their bags are great. They're not cheap. They are, but they will also last you a lifetime. Their uh, their tagline is they'll fight over it when you're gone. And in fact, I I've already got two people that are standing in line for my bags <laughs> when uh, when I kick the kick the bucket so uh they they'll last you forever again they're not cheap but they they will last you forever and uh they do look you know better and better as they get scuffed up and and sort of used and and worn so they um they they they're a really great bag they're, they'll last you forever well that is definitely a more brutal take on Patek Philippe's tag man. Uh, yeah it is it's it's again these are it's a more like an heirloom type of thing but and and family members will definitely be lining up for it if they are if that's their style uh it, it is but it will definitely outlive you and in fact I think they've got a lifetime warranty on it and I think it's your lifetime not the not the lifetime of the bag but your lifetime is is what the warranty is for so the saddleback flight bag is the briefcase like bag that you travel with what is the the other bag that you've been taking with you recently on these trips? From a backpack point of view, the company I've been happy with lately is Peak Design. Now, they're they're certainly not perfect bags by any means, but there are a lot of things about the Peak Design bags that really tick a lot of boxes for me. The one that I've been using the most is their Everyday Backpack. Uh, their 30 liter everyday backpack and this was originally designed as sort of a travel slash camera bag uh, the founders uh, originally launched this on kickstarter a number of years ago i think they started with one of their smaller bags maybe a messenger bag and uh, their designs are very nice i they're, they're very well thought out there are a few features that i wish that they had and in fact they've addressed some of my complaints about uh, about their bag in in a very recent kickstarter that they've uh they just successfully uh funded uh they've just put out a 45 liter travel backpack which um which i think ticks a lot more boxes than the um the everyday backpack for me i've been finding the backpack use is more for flights and i find the 30 liter backpack just a little bit too small one of the things that i do like to do if possible if i'm traveling for less than two weeks i try and do it just with carry-on bags if possible that's not necessarily possible with the 30 liter bag uh, so that's why i'm hoping that the 45 liter bag that they've just brought out is uh, going to make it a little bit easier for me to do the the two weeks in a in just carry on so we've touched on bags what do you actually pack in the bags then for a trip well the, i think the key thing when it comes to packing for a trip if you if you have to pack clothes and you don't already use them packing cubes are something that you need to look at for those who aren't familiar with them, they are cubes, very thin material cubes, usually with zippers um, that allow you to open up the whole top. 
And the idea is that you take all of your clothing and you stuff them into these cubes. You can often compress the clothing quite well in these cubes. Uh, so they're designed to be able to, to get high density sort of packing in uh, with your clothing. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that your clothes wrinkle, but your clothes are always going to wrinkle in a bag. It doesn't matter what you do. So just live with the idea that you're going to have to do some ironing when you get to your destination. But packing cubes are the single greatest invention when it comes to packing for any length of time when you're traveling. Uh, it means that you can actually get a, a couple of weeks worth of clothes into a very small bag with, with minimal effort. Now, do you roll or fold your clothes? I don't fold and I don't really roll. I tend to stuff more than more than roll. This is why you need to use an iron so much. You know what? I, I don't care who you are. If you roll, <laughs> you're still going to have to iron. If you don't, then you're obviously not wearing the same shirts that I am because I find if you're if you need to wear any kind of a dress shirt, even if you're rolling it, it needs to be ironed. If you're talking about t-shirts and and sort of more casual wear, then I'm not too worried about it, but anything that that I'm concerned about needing to be ironed it doesn't matter how i roll it it still needs to be ironed at the end of the day so i i just stuff and that usually allows me to get more in if i'm if i'm stuffing versus if i'm rolling that's somewhat tangential to rolling i know a number of collectors and watchmakers and, and the like who travel with watch rolls and for packing ultra light a little pro tip uh you can get away without packing a watch roll by repurposing clean socks to roll your watches. So that's something I've done from time to time. It's not often that I travel with more than one watch, but when I do, I will take the watch, slip a, a sock into the, the bracelet and roll it up in that, or if it's on a, a strap, you can slip it right into the sock and then stuff that into the, the other half of the pair. And that keeps everything nice and tidy and neat and free from scratches and banging around. In my case, I... I travel occasionally with two watches and if i do i usually have a couple of pens with me as well surprise surprise and i use a leather roll uh, that i picked up from wonder pens in toronto uh, and these rolls are made by a company in japan called superior leather yeah they're great leather rolls that are really well made and so the, these are originally designed for pens so they've got a couple of pen pockets in them uh, but they do have a large pocket which i think they originally designed for a little notebook and I find that it's actually quite a good size for slipping a watch into. Now, it's not going to keep your strap um, circular or round like the, the traditional leather roll does for, uh, for packing watches. Uh, but it will keep it protected and it will certainly, um, certainly make sure that you're not going to arrive with any damage to your watch. So that's an alternative if you happen to carry a couple of pens with you as well. You can kill two birds with one stone and, and have a, a few pens as, as well as a spot for your watch when you're traveling. Nice. Now, when it comes to traveling with pens, do you exclusively rely on the pen roll or are there other ways that you carry pens with you? Uh, no, the pen roll is, is primarily how I'm, how I'm carrying them. Uh, that, that seems to be the best, uh, the best solution for it. Uh, every once in a while I'll have, you know, a folio or something like that, that I can tuck a pen into, but, but it's typically through, through a pen roll. Uh, also, if you're traveling with fountain pens, you either want to travel with them empty or completely full. And I don't recommend traveling with vintage fountain pens. Vintage fountain pens tend to be miserable when it comes to being on planes and pressurizing and whatnot. Uh, so if you're going to travel with vintage pens, I'd recommend emptying them first. Uh, but with modern pens like mine uh, that are using the cartridge converters with the pistons in them, 
I I haven't run into too many problems with uh, with pens on planes, and usually when I do, it's because it's uh, a partially full reservoir on it. So one of the first things that I do when I I'm getting ready to travel the night before is I actually fill my my pen so that they're completely full, which means of course I don't run out of pen, of ink partway through a trip, but it also saves me from having problems with it on the plane afterwards. So what problems does it address precisely? I'm just having a bit of trouble running the, the physics on that through my brain. I can see the logic in having it totally empty, but completely full. When you're when it's completely full, there isn't any air in the reservoir, uh, which means that or very little air in the reservoir. And so it doesn't expand and contract and push ink out of the um, the nib in large quantities. Um, if you if you play around with a lot of older pens, the air tends to expand in the bladders, and you tend to end up with a big pile of ink over whatever it is that you're carrying it in. Um, so you do need to be careful with older pens, and they they will spray ink everywhere if you're not careful. Now, describing it that way, it's it's clicked for me now. It's kind of like the helium release valves on on watches. So when you've got a room for air to be in there, when the pen is under pressure, it's going to allow more air into the pen. And then when you're then depressurizing, that air is going to want to escape. And if there's any ink in the way, it's going to push that out of the the pen. Okay. Yeah. The other thing is that a lot of uh, vintage pens use a collapsible bladder of some kind in the reservoir, whereas the modern pens use a rigid shell for their reservoir. And again, with the collapsible bladder, as the air pressure increases or decreases around it, it will push and squeeze that bladder. And so it's uh, that that's another problem that run that you run into. So it's not just a case of of having air in the filler or in the the bladder area, uh, but it's also a question of what it's made out of. So if it's a flexible uh, system, then the changes in air pressure will tend to uh, tend to squeeze it, and that's not good. So travel with your pens full. Ideally, and travel with modern pens. That, that's my, my answer to that problem. It's uh, If you use modern pens, you'll you'll probably be fine. Are there any other things you like to make sure that you have with you when you travel? One thing I've been starting to travel with less and less frequently is a full-sized camera. Uh, this is something that as the camera and the iPhones have been getting better and better, uh, I've been less and less interested in carrying my full-sized digital SLR. So that's actually something that I'm not packing as often now as I used to, uh, unless I'm going somewhere specifically as a photo destination somewhere like when, for instance, when I was in Japan last year, uh, that was definitely a photo destination for me. So I was, uh, I made sure to pack my photo gear, but I'm finding these days, unless I am going somewhere like that, where I know that that's the primary purpose of it, I'm not packing uh, a full-size camera as much as I used to. Uh, which is interesting. That's that's changed quite a bit because it used to be that I would travel with a camera everywhere I went. Uh, but now I'm finding even when I do have my digital SLR with me, most of the shots that I want to get uh, as I'm traveling, I can capture with my iPhone. So that, that's becoming less and less of a, an important piece of kit for me when I'm, uh, when I'm traveling. In, in a similar vein, something I've begun traveling with, more particularly when it's for vacation purposes, and I'm intentionally not bringing a laptop with me just for that psychological release. It's it's nice not to have to number one to tote it around because it, it can be quite heavy, uh, but also just not having even the option of hopping on a computer as the camera connection kit 
or the iPhone and the iPad I have found great when traveling with uh, a camera. So when I'm on vacation, I, I do like to have the full SLR with me and it's nice to be able to just take the memory card out of that and dump it right onto the iOS device and that way I suddenly have duplicates and backups just in case anything should happen to the camera or the, the card while on vacation. And it's also nice to then be able to do some preliminary sorting and editing of photos on the iPad as well because often I find I'll take so many photos that if I don't go back and start culling what I shot pretty soon after having done it, I, I never really end up being back. You just get a, a growing collection of photos. The lack of laptop is something that I've been trying to do. I've been trying to pare down what I what I travel with, and I'm sure Rich is probably laughing right now listening to me say that because he has traveled with me recently and knows how much junk I've had on some of my recent trips with him. I mean, you guys were toting a CNC machine. I mean... Yes, that, to be fair, the majority of the junk that we were traveling around with was was his was his uh, CNC mill. So that was uh, that. That's a good point. Being free of of the laptop is actually something that's been really handy on a lot of my trips, and I find that my iPad is my primary computing device a lot of the time. And these days, there are very few things I need my laptop for. Editing the audio of this is uh, of this podcast is one of them, and doing three D modeling is another one. And these days, even if I need to do a presentation, I would I much rather give it off of my iPad these days than off of uh, off of my MacBook. So I've been trying to to drop the laptop as one of my my regular carry items on a trip. Uh, my iPad has completely replaced it for nearly everything, and certainly for photo editing, I prefer to do my photo editing now on the iPad. So if I am traveling, even for a photo destination like going to Japan or whatever. I brought my iPad with that. I didn't bring my laptop and I did all of my editing on the plane, you know, and in, you know, in the, uh, the hotels and stuff like that from my iPad. I, I didn't even, I wasn't even concerned that I didn't have my, my MacBook with me. And that of course, by the time you have the MacBook plus, you know, your chargers and everything like that, um, you know, you end up dropping nearly 10 pounds off of your, your travel weight by the time you get rid of all that stuff. So that makes a big difference when you're, when you're traveling around. Now, one thing that is important with um, with electronics, because the iPad for me is critical, same thing with the phone. I definitely enjoy having music and audiobooks and podcasts while I'm traveling. Uh, while I'm on the plane, it, it's certainly worthwhile. And one of the keys to keeping all that going, of course, is having a good charger. And something that I've started doing recently, and, and it's I'm, I'm happy that I have this MacBook because it's given me the option to do it, is I'm using the higher wattage charger from my MacBook Pro to charge all of my iOS devices. Uh, they're all designed for fast charging now, so you can use the USB-C charger. You get a USB-C cable to go from uh, USB-C to uh, Lightning. You can charge fast charge your iPad and your phone, so it means that I can bring a single charger now. I don't have to worry about charging overnight. For instance, I can leave my phone unplugged at night and I can just charge it in sort of a half hour, 45 minutes in the morning. It, it charges very, very quickly now. Same thing with the, the iPad. I can charge that very quickly using the the higher wattage USB-C charger for the MacBook Pro. So if you do travel a lot and you you find yourself bringing a whole pile of chargers because you're trying to 
to charge all of your devices. That's one of the the recommendations I'd, I'd have for you is bring a higher wattage charger so that they charge faster. The other thing that I tend to do now is I use the um, the little battery packs, the little um, portable battery packs, and I'll often charge devices while I'm in transit uh, using one of those. And that way I don't have to worry about having five different adapters or whatever to charge all of the things. Um, I can use that battery charger to to charge up things and um, and then I can just use a single adapter to charge that battery pack up overnight or whatever. So that, that's the other thing that I find useful. They're, they're light enough and small enough that they're easy to carry around with me. But power obviously is, is always something that's a concern whenever you're traveling. Is there a particular battery pack that you tend to favor? Uh, I've been a fan of the Anker ones that are out there, A-N-K-E-R. They've been doing some great accessories for electronics over the last couple of years. Uh, they're, they're really killing it when it comes to uh, their design and just making well-thought-out electronics devices. Uh, everything from their adapters to their battery packs and things like that. So there, there are various ones out there. I don't know. They they keep iterating and bringing out new versions of it. So certainly finding one of the larger anchor battery packs is worthwhile. There are guidelines to the size of the batteries that you can bring on planes now. So they, they you know they understand that and they've been able to, to sort of work within those guidelines and and create battery packs that that fit. And you know one of those battery packs you can usually charge your phone and your iPad a couple of times each. And, you know, which is great. So certainly worthwhile and um, saves you from needing to have a bunch of chargers, saves you from needing to be, you know, the person at the airport who's sitting in an uncomfortable spot next to a pillar because that's where, you know, the, the power happens to be in that, that airport. So look at those battery packs. They're, they're, they're certainly worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, use an anchor pack as well. Now you've mentioned to me in the past that you, you have some special software on your laptop that you do make use of when you travel with it. Do you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Yeah, one of the apps I found really handy over the years for my Mac is Control Plane. It's a little utility that sits up in your menu bar and it allows you to control which applications run as well as access to the computer through various contexts. And those contexts can be anything from which network am I on? For instance, am I on a wireless network that I recognize, like my home network? Or is it one that I trust, like my office network? That kind of thing. Uh, you can also say, is if this isn't one that I trust, I want you to lock the computer down so that it's, you know, that it's not possible to access it through regular services that might be available on a, on a network that you trust. So Control Plane, is, it's a small utility um, it's a little bit challenging to to figure out at first. You you have to sort of learn how to jump through the hoops that they've set up. But once you once you figure it out, I, I find it extremely helpful and powerful. So Control Plane is is certainly a useful one. Uh, most recently, though, one of the applications I've found, um, and it's a sort of a combination of hardware and software, is the Luna Display. Again, this was a Kickstarter that came out last year, and the company that made it had created software that would allow you to mirror your uh, Mac display onto your iPad. So you could essentially use your iPad as a second display on um, on your Mac. And they went ahead and created, they created a piece of hardware that takes advantage of the external display capabilities now on Mac OS. And it's, it's just a small dongle that sits into the side of your, of your MacBook, plugs into the USB-C port, and it allows you to... Uh, to extend the display of your MacBook over to your iPad. 
you can use it over either a wireless network or you can plug a cable in so that you're you're continuously charging your uh, your MacBook and and it also works a little bit faster if you do that. The refresh rate isn't quite up to speed; like it's you're not getting sixty frames a second like you would off of a normal display, uh, but it's an excellent option if you're used to working on multiple displays like I am, especially if you're doing things that um, uh, you know that, that benefit from having a, a couple of displays then being able to extend your MacBook display over onto your iPad is extremely handy when you're on the road because I'm in my case, I'm always carrying my iPad with me. So it's something that I've got with me regardless. And the fact that I can turn it into a second display that again is nearly the size of my, my normal MacBook uh, screen. It's a retina screen. So again, you get a high resolution. Uh, it's really, really handy. Uh, and and that that's something I've been finding that I use more and more when I do bring my laptop with me places, I, I always have that little dongle with me and it's uh it's a great little utility for, for extending the usefulness of your machine while you're, while you're traveling. Before we wrap up, are there any other little items that you find particularly handy? Uh, when it comes to travel, I obviously try and keep everything as light as possible in terms of what you're carrying. I find that I still overpack and every time I travel, I cut down on the list. So I'm I'm creating lists now of things to pack when I travel and if it's if there's something that I don't use I put an asterisk beside it and uh I have to you know I sort everything later based on that and I am critical about what I'm bringing the next time based on those asterisks and whether or not I actually think I need it and if I have more than a couple of asterisks besides something, then it definitely doesn't go on my packing list. So I'm becoming quite ruthless when it comes to packing things. Uh, I don't pack anything paper-wise. Uh, I don't pack paper books anymore or magazines. I used to do that, uh, but they just add a lot of weight to your your travel kit. So I, I tend to avoid that kind of thing. Uh, often I end up buying books when I'm traveling places anyway. So I know that if I'm if I'm going somewhere, I have to have luggage allowance for my books that I'm bringing back. So uh, bringing books with me doesn't make a lot of sense. And these days with my iPad and my phone, again, I'm uh, I'm traveling with, with most of the reading material that I need. Other things that I find really useful, of course, my Bose noise-canceling headphones. That is such a boon on a plane. Planes are incredibly noisy. Under Your body's under a lot of stress already being on that flight. So being able to cut out the noise, even if it's something that you wear while you're sleeping, that's uh, that's beneficial and uh, and certainly worthwhile. If you travel more than once or twice a year, th- I think the the Bose noise canceling headphones pay for themselves just in in your comfort while you're while you're on long flights. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that I would say uh, is something that I picked up a few years ago, and it, it's not necessarily open to everybody who's listening to this, uh, but if you do have it available, I highly recommend it. I, I joined the Nexus program here between Canada and the U.S. a few years ago, uh, and I know that there's a few similar sort of world traveler options depending on which countries you're in. If you're in Europe or Britain, uh, then there there are some similar options for you. And of course, these are all being driven by the U.S. and and their security policies. Um, but they allow you to often jump the line when it comes to screening at um, at airports. And in some cases, the screening procedures are far more pleasant than what the the normal sort of passengers have to go through. So for instance, you're not being required to take off your shoes and your belt and 
your jacket and, you know, all the other pieces of clothing that they require these days to take off. Uh, you're often not required to take your electronics out of your bag, uh, which for somebody like me, where I've I've always got electronics in my bag, it makes things a little bit easier when it go, comes to going through security. And it can also make things significantly faster. I, I know I've been through uh, security with people. I'm traveling with people and I'll go through security through the Nexus line. They have to go through the normal line and I'll beat them to the gate by half hour, um, you know, through some of the bad airports out there. So if you're traveling more than a couple of times a year, look into getting something like that. Again, it gets you into things like TSA Pre, which allow you to avoid some of the nasty lines at at security. And I think it cost me $50 US and it's good for five years. It's worth every penny. Um, So if you have something like that open to you and available to you, and you're especially if you're traveling through the U.S., I understand if you're traveling in other parts of the world, security is different, and uh, they don't make you undress when you're going through security, so uh, it it may not be so bad. But if you're if you're traveling in the U.S. in particular, get some kind of pre-check clearance thing like that. It's uh, it is worth every penny, and uh, you'll save yourself a lot of time and hassle. So you've mentioned books and, and videos a couple of times through the episode that it's something you like to spend your time on while you are traveling. What are some some books or, or videos you've been into recently? Uh, one of the things I've actually found quite satisfying lately is the YouTube premium subscription uh, that's just recently come to Canada. I know they've been uh, rolling it out for a while in the US. I think they called it uh, YouTube Red down in the States. And the the primary benefit of it is that you get ad-free videos. But one of the other benefits is that you can download videos offline using the uh, YouTube app in iOS. Uh, so that's something that I've been doing recently. And that way I can catch up on various YouTube videos while I'm on the plane. Uh, so I've been going through and, and watching a lot of the Horological Society of New York's videos uh, that way, because of course, a lot of them are, are sort of an hour or more in length. But one of the series that I, I've been following over the last few years or channels that I've been following over the last few years is the uh, ClickSpring channel on YouTube. And uh, this is put together by an Australian. And he he started his channel out, um, or I guess when I started following him, he was in the midst of working on a uh, clock. Uh, and he was going through all of the process and documenting uh, all of the tools that he made for the clock as well as the clock itself. And his most recent project, he's actually working on a replica of the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, that's something if you had a chance to read uh, Simon Winchester's The Perfectionists, uh, Simon makes a reference or a few references to the Antikythera mechanism in there. Uh, it's the earliest sort of, I guess, clockwork mechanism that we found. And um, it it's quite an impressive feat of engineering considering the time that it was being made and everything that it's tracking and whatnot. Uh, and so Chris has been going through and he's making a modern replica of it. He's been using tools and methods that he thinks would have been used by the original creator of the, uh, of the mechanism to actually make it. And, uh, so it's, it's a great series to watch. He's, he's, he has a, a really great visual, uh, presentation style. Uh, they're, they're pleasant to watch, even if you have no intention of ever making one. Uh, there's certainly, uh, I know a lot of people who watch them who are not makers and and would never consider making something like this, but they're a lot of fun to watch and they're interesting. Uh, so I, I highly recommend the the ClickSpring YouTube channel. Uh, and then something that I think both of us have either been reading or have finished reading is uh, Ken Koshenda's book, Creative Create Selection. 
uh, about his time at uh, Apple. I think you've finished reading that already, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great read. So Ken Kashenda was originally hired on at, at Apple to spearhead the Safari project alongside Don Melton. They, they'd both uh, worked together in the past. So the, the, between the two of them and eventually they brought on a, a third person, they basically were able to develop amongst the three of them a proof of concept web browser on running on Mac OS X for the very first time. Because up until that point, it was all you know, Internet Explorer and Netscape Navigator and the like. And he, of course, progressed on through his career at Apple and has had his, his fingerprints on a number of things, including the iPhone and the, in particular, the keyboard that we interact with on the iPhone and the iPad were pretty much written and developed almost exclusively by him with some input from some other engineers and, and executives, of course probably the the way we all interact with these devices the most that is that is ken's work and he's done a number of other things as well which he, he touches on in in the book and in various other interviews but it's a, a really interesting insight into the design process at apple and the, the reason the book is called creative selection is that, that he parallels it with natural selections so the darwinian concept of, of evolution and, and how things come to be as they are. And it's uh, just a, a slow process of refinement. And there'd be some periods of rapid growth in there as well, or rapid change as you try and dial in which, which direction to go in. But it was, yeah, great book, really interesting read. I think uh, perhaps we could do a, an episode on that at some point in the future as well, once you finish reading it. Uh, I, I always enjoy reading the work uh, or reading about the work that people have done in in environments like that people who've had such a dramatic impact on uh, on our modern world in various ways whether it's somebody like Dieter Rams or uh, in this case somebody like Ken where he's he's responsible for an interface that we're so familiar with and that that's so critical to to how we interact with our technology um so I, i'm looking forward to finishing it it's uh, it's been good so far so you finished reading Ken's creative selection what's uh, what is currently on your uh, nightstand so I've been reading recently Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which has been absolutely fascinating. And to distill it down, I would say that if sleep could be distilled and, and put into a bottle and sold, it would be quite the wonder product. The, the sheer number of things that, that sleep does for our bodies and, and all the various benefits that stem up from that are in Incredible. And I found this to be quite a, a fascinating read and uh, I guess relates somewhat to, to what we were talking about a little earlier in the episode here where you were saying you have trouble sleeping on flights. And uh, I, I hate to break it to you, but it has some, uh, some unfortunate knock-on effects for you. You know, I'm painfully aware of just how bad it is for your body to, to not sleep regularly. Unfortunately, this week I have had far too little sleep. I've been suffering because of that. So I, I'm, I may have to read this book afterwards. I, I, but I'm, believe me, I, I'm well aware of just how important sleep is these days, uh, especially when I'm not getting it. So yeah, it, it sounds like an interesting read. Well, with that, then I, I shall let you go. And I wish you a, a very good night's sleep. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter 
at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. So I haven't had a chance to do a lot of watchmaking lately. Uh, unfortunately, with uh, between trips and everything, it's it's been uh, it's been very little time at the bench. But one of the things that I have noticed uh, as the weather has been getting colder here is that my uh, loop has been fogging up more and more. So what uh, what do you do for for preventing your your loop from fogging? Well, I guess the first thing you could probably do is just. You know, maybe turn the heat up in the house, turn the rest of the house into a sauna so that you get your, your watchmaking space there nice and, and warm so that the ambient temperature in the room there matches the ambient temperature between your eye and the loop. Uh, but more realistically, some, some things that I, I do is I just try and keep a, a gap, a slight gap between the loop and my eye socket and at least one area. So it's, it's not going to be possible to have the loop just floating there in front of your eye unless you're mounting it on, say, a pair of glasses. But I usually keep a small gap. And then another thing that is helpful is to just create some small holes around the perimeter of the loop, right where the, the lens is. And that allows air in the room to, to flow in and out of the loop as well. Because the reason it's fogging is just because of that, that difference in temperature between the ambient temperature around you and then the temperature between your body and the loop causing condensation to form there on the, the lens. Well, I think that the cats might enjoy your first option of, of superheating the house. I think I may go for drilling some holes in the uh, in the loop as it uh, is something that's been annoying me more and more. And I, I have actually noticed a few companies sell loops with uh, with holes cut in the side of them. So I may uh, I may see if I can do something creative with that and uh, and put a couple of holes in the side of my loops because that's that's certainly been a challenging thing for me lately. Mm hmm. And I have seen loops sold even with almost a whole half of it cut out. And I, personally, not my, my favorite way to go because I appreciate that the loop blocks reflected light from the surroundings and really allows you to literally have tunnel vision for what you're looking at. So just the small holes tend to do the trick. Yeah, that's certainly one of the things that, that concerned me a little bit when I saw those loops was the, the amount of light that they would allow in. So it's something that I need to... Uh... I need to consider when I'm drilling holes, I don't want to put too many holes in it because I don't want too much extra light getting on the inside. Mm -hmm. And dust will eventually build up in there too, but that's that's inevitable either way. So you just make sure you clean your loop. Right? Yeah, and you can disassemble them and yeah, clean them. That's, that's not so bad. You don't have to disassemble them. They're just yeah, a little bit of Windex. Well, I, it's, easy to, it's easy enough to open them up and take them apart. I will say one of the things that I, I had a bit of a challenging time finding was a good spirit for cleaning parts with. And uh, I eventually found, because if you, if you just search for naphtha, it's very difficult to, uh, which I know is one of the common uh, cleaning fluids used for watchmaking. It, it's difficult to find, um, find naphtha available uh, these days. And uh, I was able to eventually track some down as um, sort of a white, white fuel for camping uh, mm -hmm. stoves. Uh, that's available usually at a reasonable price, but they don't sell it as naphtha. They sell it as a as a white fuel. So, yeah, if you're out there looking for a good cleaning fluid when uh, when you're working with um, with watch watch parts, you go to your uh, your local camping store, and uh, you don't want to get one with um, colorants in them or anything like that. Like the Coleman products tend to have a 
a blue dye in them to uh, to color them. Uh, so you, you want to avoid that. But um, some of the pure uh, white fuel uh, alternatives, I, fa- I found mine at Mech uh, here in Ottawa. So uh, any of the, the higher-end uh, stores will probably, higher-end camping stores will probably have something appropriate. Yeah, it's good to watch out for other additives as well that they may put in there. Sort of rust inhibitors and, and things like that can leave it a filmy substance on the surface of a part after you clean it. So you want to get something that's close to pure as possible. 